0: Thank you, Jenna. Um, So uh, back when uh, Kirsten and I were just dating and um, and when we first got married, uh, when the weather was nice, one thing we liked to do together is uh, we would go out and play tennis. Children? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I completely forgot. I'm like, I'm getting hand signals. I don't know what's going on. Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. With our elementary schoolers, if you would like to go to elementary Bible time uh, with our kids team, you can make your way and follow Miss Becca here, and then the kids will rejoin us a little later uh, in the service. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, for that reminder. Okay, back to my story. Back to my story. Uh, So when when Kirsten and I were were dating and and we first got married, when the weather was nice, we we liked to go and and play tennis together, Uh, but we ran into a problem, and the problem was that we're both very competitive people, and we both love to win, and we both hate to lose. And of course, when we would play tennis against each other, one of us always had to lose. And, And I'll be honest, usually that was me. Uh, I'm not a great tennis player. Uh, Kirsten is much better than me, and so most of the time what would happen is what would happen is, she would beat me, and then I would be grumpy and in my feelings, and, and it would take me a while to get over that. Occasionally, I would catch her on an off day, and I would pull the upset. I'm, I'm not very good at tennis, but I have a pretty wicked slice, and so if I get that going and the ball's spinning, you know, sometimes I could win, but then we had the opposite problem Because then she would get all grumpy and be in her feelings and it would take her a while to to get over it. So it's probably a good thing for our marriage in some ways that we don't have as much time as we used to 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 go out and play tennis. But I share that because I imagine that we are not alone, right? All of us, I dare say, all of us love to win. This is a big part of our culture as Americans, I think. And you think about just the, the things that we watch on TV. This is why so many of us like to watch sports, because we love to win, or if you're not into sports, you know we have game shows where people are competing against each other. We have talent competitions. We have baking competition shows. We live in a culture that has turned baking a cake into something that you can win, right? We, we love, love, love to win. Now, here's where I'm going with the sermon today. We love to win in general, like in all areas of, of life. But when it comes to politics... When it comes to social issues, I think a lot of times we don't just love to win. I think we feel like we have to win. We must win. Because when we encounter someone who is just plain wrong socially, who is just plain politically wrong, and they're so hurtful and they're so harmful, we cannot let them win, right? We, We must defeat them. If I'm a Democrat, I'm, I'm looking at the Republicans like, we've got to defeat them. They, they must lose. Or if I'm a Republican, we got to beat the Democrats. We've we got to make sure we win so that they don't win on any social issue. Pick your hot button social issue. If I'm pro-life, I'm looking at the pro-choice people. we got to defeat them. We can't let them win. Similar, pro-choice, pro-life people, we gotta we got to beat them. We have this, this fixation on winning. Now, why is that a problem? What's the big deal? Isn't this just how politics uh, are done? Well, maybe, but here's why it's a problem. When I get so fixated on beating you and winning, then I'm not in a mindset where I'm looking for any common ground between us, right? And a lot of times, I'm not in a mindset where I'm even trying to find common humanity with you. And so when we get so fixated On winning, it becomes that much easier to demonize people, to dehumanize people, and even to hate people. I think this fixation on winning is actually driving a lot of the the division and the polarization that we see in our society right now. Now, why am I bringing all this up in the sermon today? It's because I want to suggest at the risk of offending everybody in every party on all sides of any issue, Um, y'all may start throwing things at me by the end of this sermon, but I can duck, that's okay. I wanna suggest that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, when we engage socially, when we engage politically, and we should, we should do that, but as we do that, I wanna suggest that our primary goal should not actually be winning. Certainly our primary goal should not be winning at all costs, because Jesus has shown us a better way. Jesus has shown us a healthier, more life-giving way. Jesus has actually shown us a more effective and productive way of engaging socially and politically in the world uh, around us. And I think this is really important for us to take some time to think about. I know anytime we start talking about politics in church, everybody gets a little tense. I could see some of y'all's shoulders rise up as soon as I brought up politics uh, why are we talking about this in church? It's important because, I don't know about you, I, I look around at our society right now, and a lot of times I see Christians out in the public sphere, and they're not resisting the forces of division. A lot of the times it's, it's Christians who are fanning the flames of division. A lot of times it's Christians who are leading the charge uh, in terms of polarization and, and at times even hate. And so that's why I think it's important for us to talk about this in church. And for all of these reasons, we're starting a new sermon series today, three-part series. It's called Not In It to Win It. Not In It to Win It. The series is loosely based on a book by the same title uh, by a pastor from Georgia whose name is Andy Stanley. Some of you may have heard that name before. Uh, he's a pastor that I have lots of disagreements with. Um, but I respect him a lot, and I've learned a lot from him, and I think it's an excellent book. So if this series interests you, I encourage you to go check out the the Not In It To Win It book. But the goal of this series is not for us to talk about where, as Christians, we should stand on any given issue or or which political party we should primarily affiliate with. Those are interesting questions and important questions, but that's not what this series is about. This series is about the how of our political and social engagement. How should we show up as Christians? What should our tone be? What should our posture be? What should our approach be? Because if we're not careful, we can get so focused on making sure that we're right on the issues that we lose sight of the fact that our tone and our approach and our posture actually no longer reflects the love of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. I think this is going to be challenging. I hope it is. I hope it's going to be thought-provoking. Um, this is a complex set of topics that we're going to be wading into, right? And so there's no way I can cover everything that needs to be said in three 25 minute sermons. So I hope, as with all sermons at Kindred, I hope this is not a conversation ender, but that this is a, a conversation starter. I hope that this will get some wheels turning and that you guys will continue the conversation amongst yourselves and, and even with me in, in the weeks uh, ahead. So that's where we're going. Not in it to win it. That's the series. For today, as we're starting out here, there's just one foundational question that I want to get us thinking about. You know, when we engage socially, when we engage politically in any kind of meaningful way, what is inevitably going to happen is we're going to run into somebody that we think or that we know is just plain wrong. And a lot of times, as we've said, our instinct is to try to defeat that person, So the question that I want to get us thinking about together this morning is, how does God treat people who are wrong? How does God treat people who are wrong? And how does that shape how we should treat people who are wrong? To help us think through this, I want to spend some time with you in this passage in Luke 15 that Jenna read for us a moment ago. But before we dive fully into the scripture, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, gracious and loving God, uh, we, we thank you for this time and space, again, that we have to give you our full attention. Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts by the power of your spirit now. Help us to hear the words of love and, and affirmation that you always have for us, but God, also open us up to the ways that you're challenging us to change, to grow, and to be transformed. pray all of this in the name of your son, who is the living word. Amen. So Luke 15, some of you will be familiar with this story, but um, you may not know the context. Here's the context: One day, Jesus is out and about. He's doing his thing. He's traveling through this town. We don't know which town, actually, but uh, he was in a town and he decides to stop and he decides to do some teaching. And Jesus was such a good preacher. Whenever he would stop and start to teach and preach, like crowds would gather. And Luke, who's the narrator, he tells us that on this particular day there were two groups in particular two groups who came out to hear Jesus teach, and these two groups could not be more different. On the one hand, you had the Pharisees. So this is like the the religious conservatives of the day. And on the other hand, you had the tax collectors and the sinners. And, And these groups, both of them thought that the other group was very, very wrong, right? The Pharisees thought the tax collectors and sinners were wrong because they just weren't living right. They weren't trying to follow God's instruction or God's commands. They were unholy. The the tax collectors and sinners, on the other hand, they thought the Pharisees were wrong because they thought the Pharisees were so self-righteous and, and judgy and, and hypocritical. And Jesus is up there trying to trying to preach and there's all this tension in the crowd. And at one point the tension becomes so great it, it bubbles up and it actually gets directed at Jesus himself. The Pharisees turn on Jesus and they point the finger and they say, this man, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. In other words, this guy associates himself with these people who are just plain wrong. And so what does Jesus do? Does he jump into the argument and start trying to tear people down? No. Jesus is wise enough to recognize he's got a golden teaching opportunity here that he doesn't want to miss. And so instead of jumping into the, the fight between these groups, Jesus redirects them to this question of, how does God treat people who are wrong. And to help teach on this, Jesus tells this this story, what we call a a parable. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a father, and he had two sons. We're going to talk about the older son in just a minute, but first we'll focus on the younger son. At the beginning of the story, the younger son goes to his father, and he does something that is very, very wrong. He disrespects his father to his face. Basically tells him, in effect, dad, drop dead. I'm done with you. I'm done with this family. I'm done with this whole household. I'm getting ready to leave, and I am never, ever coming back. And then he says, since I'm leaving forever, dad, since you're as good as dead to me, go ahead and give me my share of the family inheritance, right? This amount of money that he was going to receive when his father passed away, he's like, dad, you're already dead to me. Go ahead and give me my share of your life savings. And for some reason, the father hands over all that money to this younger son. And then he goes, he leaves home, and he starts doing (laughs) more things that are wrong. In effect, he like goes to Vegas, we can imagine, right? That's not in the text. That's my paraphrase. He goes to Vegas. If you've ever seen the movie The Hangover, right? This is sort of of what's happening. Um, So he just starts blowing this money left and right. He's gambling, he's partying, all the booze, all this and that, extravagant living. And before he knows it, The money is gone. He has blown through his share of his father's whole life savings. And now he's in a bad spot because he's far from home. He's got nowhere to turn. He's flat broke. He's got nowhere to go. So what does he do? Out of desperation, he decides, all right, I'm going to crawl back home, and I'm going to see if my dad will let me back into the household. And the question at the heart of this story is like, what is the father going to do? How's the father going to treat this son who was so very wrong? Well, uh, Jesus explains that apparently every single day while the son was gone, the father would go out and he would look out at the horizon and he would look as far up the road as he could possibly see, just waiting, just hoping and praying that his son would have a change of heart and and would come back home. And so the father's actually out there on the day when the younger son comes back home. He sees him coming up the road. And what does the father do? Does he he cross his arms? Does he get ready to to give the son a whooping and and teach him a lesson? Not at all. He sees the son coming, he takes off running down the road. And when he gets to him, he, he wraps him up in a big old bear hug, and then he walks him back to the house, and the father proceeds to throw the biggest welcome home party that that town had ever seen. Jesus says that that's how this father treated his son, who was wrong. Didn't try to defeat him, didn't try to destroy him, didn't try to tear him down. But he continued to treat him with love. Now, that's not the end of the story. There's a little bit more here. Jesus goes on. He starts telling us about the older son. So the older son uh, had been working hard in the field dutifully all day, doing what he was supposed to do. Any oldest children in the room here? I'm an oldest child in the family, a couple of you. Okay, I think there's more, but you guys are being shy. That's okay. The oldest children, we're the responsible ones, right? We've got it together. We do what we're supposed to do. We do what we're told. So this guy, he comes back in from a hard day's work. He sees this party going on. One of the servants tells him, yeah, your, your bum younger brother came home and your dad decided to have this big party. And now the older son is ticked. Like he's really, really salty about this so much he won't even go into the party. And so the, the father like sees what's going on. He comes out to try to get the older son to come into the party. But the older son says, no, dad, what the heck? In effect, the older son says, dad, you're letting him win. He wronged you, he wronged me, he wronged our whole household. He made us a laughingstock in the eyes of the community. You're letting him win. Now listen to what the, the father says in response to the older son. I want to show you this uh, on the slide. Here's what the father said. Then his father said, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. He goes on. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, remember, he's your own flesh and blood. This brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost. We thought he was gone. We thought he was never coming back. He's lost, but now he's found. Now he's found. Now notice that the father is saying here, he's saying, son, This is not about wins and losses. Stop making this about winning and losing. This is about love. This is about, yeah, your your brother was wrong. He did a whole bunch of things that were wrong, but we still love him. And because we still love him, we're going to treat him with love. And so Jesus says this story. He says, understand everybody, Pharisees, tax collectors, all of us, this is how God treats people who are wrong. We want to defeat people who are wrong. We want to win. We want to make sure that they lose. God loves people who are wrong. And because God does, God is committed to healing people who are wrong. God is committed to restoring people who are wrong. And so God's ready to celebrate whenever that healing and restoration happens. God loves people who are wrong. Now, if this seems unfair to you, If this seems not right, if this seems unjust, I would just point out that thank goodness for us that this is how God treats people who are wrong. Because we don't like to think about this, but here's the truth. In God's eyes, all of us, every one of us is wrong to some degree, right? Because we all fall short of God's calling and God's expectations of us. We're all sinners, We all do things that hurt ourselves, don't we? And God loves us, and so God's not okay with that. And we all do things that hurt other people, that God loves, and God is not okay with that. We're we're sinners. All of us, in some way, we treat God like the younger son in the story, don't we? we? We want the good things from God. God, give me your love. God, give me your affirmation. Give me those blessings in my life, God. But, but what about the accountability? But what about when, when God is calling us to, to spend time building a relationship with God in prayer? What happens when God calls us to do something that feels uncomfortable? What, what, what happens when God wants us to serve in a new way and take a step out of our, our comfort zone? What happens then? We, we fall short, don't we? We all fall short. And, and so how does God treat us in all of our wrongness. I want to share a verse with you. This is, um, I think, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, one of the most powerful verses, and yet I think it's one of the most overlooked verses. This is Romans 5 verse 8. Check this out. It says, but God, this is the Apostle Paul writing, but God shows us his love for us because while we, let's pause there, that's a really important we, right? It's not while they, those other people, those people who are wrong. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, while we were wrong, while we were kicking and screaming against God, what did God do? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Do you see? Do you see? That's how God treats people who are wrong. Thanks be to God for you and for me, right? So so let's come back to us. Let's make this practical. What does all of this have to do with the way that we show up and engage politically and, and socially in our world? I think what all of this means for us as followers of Jesus is that when we encounter somebody that we know is wrong our goal, our primary goal, should not be to win. It should not be to defeat that person. It should be to love that person, to love that person even as we continue to oppose them in some cases, to love them even as we continue to work for what we believe is right. Now, I want to be clear here about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the the issues don't matter, or that the differences between us don't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the stakes on these debates aren't high. They are high. I'm not saying that we as Christians shouldn't take bold social and political stands. I was a political science major in undergrad. I almost went into politics myself. I know this stuff matters. I have strong opinions on these things, right? And I just preached last Sunday on the importance of being bold as as Christians. That still applies, In this arena, absolutely. But what I am saying is that when we encounter somebody who is wrong, our primary goal is is not to win, but it's it's to keep loving that person, to keep loving that person. I was trying to think this week of of a good example of, of somebody who's lived this out. And I think in modern times that there's probably no better example of this than the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? I don't think any of us would sit here and say that Dr. King didn't take bold stands and Dr. King was some milk toast moderate. No way, right? None of us would say that. Of course not. And yet, and yet, part of what made Dr. King's leadership so powerful and so influential was that he was deeply, deeply committed to loving people who were wrong. I recently heard this story that I wanted to, to share with you. It's a story about uh, this white guy. This was back in the, the 50s and 60s, somewhere around in there. This white guy grew up in South Carolina, very segregated society, and he just kind of inherited these segregationist views. And he ends up uh, going to seminary. He ends up going to divinity school at Yale up in Connecticut in preparation for becoming a pastor. And while he's up at at Yale Divinity School, he kind of has this conversion experience where his eyes are opened and and he realizes that this, this segregationist culture that he grew up in is deeply, deeply wrong and evil. And he becomes committed to supporting the civil rights movement. And he he becomes convicted that as a Christian and as a soon-to-be pastor, he needs to do everything in his power to dismantle this segregationist way of thinking. He becomes very passionate about this. Well, there's one holiday season where school's out for the holidays, right? So he gets on a plane. And he's going back to South Carolina. He's going from Connecticut back to South Carolina uh, to spend the holidays with his family. And as he gets on the plane on this particular day, he's feeling this deep sense of dread. He, he's dreading having to go back and spend time with his family, particularly his father, because his father is still a staunch segregationist. And, and this young student, he had tried reasoning with his father and talking with his father and arguing and even yelling at his father, but nothing was getting through. His father was a, a staunch segregationist. And in this young student, he came to hate his father for that. He was just dreading going home. So he's sitting on the plane. He's stewing in his feelings. Well, it just so happened that on that same plane, on that same day, was Dr. King. Dr. King had been up north for a conference, was flying back to the south. And so this young student, about halfway through the flight, he finally works up the courage to go and, and say hey to, to Dr. King. So he goes up in the aisle, taps him on the shoulder, introduces himself, Dr. King, I'm, I'm such a big fan. I'm such an admirer. Thank you for your leadership. And then he starts to tell Dr. King about his dad. And he says, I just, I, I can't, I don't want to go home. And I just, my father, he's this backward, stupid, racist, and I've tried this and I've tried that, but I just, I just can't stand the guy. Finally, he ends his rant. And Dr. King is nodding patiently, and, and Dr. King finally gets a chance to speak, and he opens his mouth. And what the student thought he was going to say was, yeah, you know, you, you stand up to your dad, and you tell him this, and you tell him that, and you, you don't back down. But that's not what Dr. King said. Dr. King leans out into the aisle, a little closer to the student, looks him in the eyes, and he just says one sentence, just one sentence. He, he looks him in the eyes, and he says, son, you need to love your father. You, you need to love your father. That's all he said. And then he pulls his hat down over his face and he leans back and takes a nap. That's all he said. Now, notice Dr. King did not say your dad's views aren't that big of a deal or they're not wrong or it doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. But that's how committed Dr. King was to loving people even when they're wrong. Now, If we want to sit here and think that that way of love, that that way of Jesus is ineffective or it's weak, I would just remind us, Dr. King has a statue on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Every single January, our whole society celebrates his birthday. That's the kind of impact that we had. The building that we're in right now is on a street named after MLK because of the impact that this guy had. So we don't need to sit here and think this way of love is some weak, ineffective option. We're going to talk about that more in the next few weeks. But I'll stop here for today. When we love people who are wrong, do you know what we're doing? We're aligning our hearts with the heart of God. And I don't care who you vote for. I don't care where you stand on any hot button issue. I hope that we could all agree that what our society needs more than ever right now it's people who are humbly trying to align their hearts with the heart of God. And so my encouragement for us is, it's tough, but let's be those people. Let's not be in it to win it. Let's be in it to love as Jesus loves. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, this is so hard. This is so hard for us. Because when we encounter people who are wrong, and there are so many of them, God, when we encounter people who are hurtful and, and, and harmful, we, we think we need to just win at all costs. We, we think we need to, to react against them and, and push them down and make sure that they lose, Lord. But we are hypocrites when we do that because we are so grateful that that is not how you have treated us in all of our wrongness. So God, give us the wisdom and God, give us the courage and give us the strength to to step up and to love others the way that you've loved us, To, to love others even when they're wrong, Lord. And we pray that you would empower us that as we do that, we would be powerful agents of justice, that we would be powerful agents of your kingdom in this world. That so desperately, desperately needs to see your love. We thank you for this hard message, God, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. During this song of reflection, you can sit and contemplate. You can sing along.